Excellent, excellent. We're going to be reading God's Word now, um, and we're reading from Genesis chapter 22. We were going through the book of Genesis, and my, my challenge to you was, if you, if you can find a time to just to read the book of Genesis in these weeks, I know some of you have done that, and, but it's, it's good to, to read the stories in their fullness and their context. Last week we left where finally, after many, many years of hoping and waiting on God's promises, Isaac was born. And Sarah, who had laughed at the thought of becoming a mum in her old age, was now left laughing with joy. And Isaac just meant he laughs. And we have that lovely image last week of the, of the giggling baby in the mother's arms. And we pick up the story just now at chapter 22 with a slightly different light of what happened next. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When they had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and, and said to his father, Abraham, Father! Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and 
There in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. To this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, your, your difficult word, your shocking word that shakes us, we pray by your grace and by your spirit you would speak to us. Amen. Gosh, what a story. You know, you, sometimes you, you remember these stories from Sunday school or wherever you heard them, but it's, it's when you come to the Bible again and read them, isn't it? You go, really? It just raises so many questions, doesn't it? So many questions. I mean, Abraham, we've been reading his story, this, this man of faith, this, this example of faith, this father of all that believe. Well, fantastic. What a man of faith, but... Would you want him for your dad? What, what is this? I mean, what type of religious fanatic, we might ask, is willing to do that for his faith? We don't expect that from the Bible. We expect that from, I don't know, Al-Qaeda or, or, or you know, just raises so many questions. And, and, and I guess one of the questions is, what type of God? Am I the only one troubled by that? I suspect not. The story up till now has been a little bit easier. It's not been easy for Abraham, but it's been a bit easier for us to understand. God, in chapter 12, called Abraham. He said, Go, leave your home, leave your family, leave your, your fa the place you're used to, and, and come with me. And as you come with me, go with a promise that I give you, that I am going to take you into this unknown place, but I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you children, lots and lots of children. I'm going to give you a future and a legacy and a purpose. I'm going to give your children a land. You know that your life is significant if you follow me because I'm going to use you mightily. I'm going to bless you. And, and through you, I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the people of the earth. It was an amazing promise. Abraham given not just a blessing in his life, but perhaps more importantly, a purpose and a sense of a relationship with God. He was walking forward with God into God's great plan, not just for him, but for the whole world. Now, it was hard. 
he might have gone to start with, with with enthusiasm, but as the years went on and he had no children and he and his wife got older and older and older, it began to be harder to believe. And many of us who have followed the Lord know that as, as, it's, as it's gone on. It's not got easier. It's got more difficult. There seems to be more and more obstacles, more and more problems. Sometimes they're just by the nature of things, and at other times they were Abraham's own fault. One problem was he got into the land and there was a whole lot of people living there. And they were getting older and they couldn't have children. And, and, and what's happening here? And other bits of it were Abraham's trying to do his own thing and telling lies to Pharaoh and, you know, all sorts of schemes. And they got Hagar and they tried to have children a different way and all sorts of things that weren't God's purpose. But through all those difficulties, no matter what Abraham did, no matter how hard it was, God kept reiterating this promise. And the promise got clearer as they went on. I will give you children. They will be by Sarah. You will have them for yourself. And you will have these descendants in this land until in chapter 21, God gave him finally a son. And if we had just stopped at chapter 21, we might have stopped in a place that seemed to be so good. Not just a promise that Abraham had, but words. It's interesting at the end of chapter 21, and this is one of the reasons why we read one passage when we read the Bible, but actually we need to read wider. Because the end of the last chapter, we find this, these amazing words. Abraham planted a tamar, tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, what had happened here? Notice two things. First of all, he's finally got his son and we're told he planted a tree. Now, you don't plant a tree if you're going to move the next day, do you? You move to a holiday house, you don't plant a tree. You plant a tree where you know that you're going to be there for a while. And so what Abraham is doing here is quite literally, he's been nom being a nomad with no land, moving around. He settles down. He plants roots. He thinks, I'm here now. This is the place I'm going to be. And there he is. And he also calls God here the everlasting God. Or the, phr the phrase might mean the God who gives reliably. It's almost as if Abraham is saying, this is it. I've got the son. I'm in the land. God's delivered. And we might just at that point have scrolled the movie of Abraham with, and they all lived happily ever after. That would be brilliant. And I could tell you all that there you are. Follow the Lord. Trust him. Difficult times but happy ending. But then, bang. Chapter 22. Chapter 22. And those horrible, horrible words. But you know this? This is where, for me, the Bible actually makes sense. When you read a a fantasy book, it has that happy ending, doesn't it, very often? Or the fairy tale, where everything is neatly resolved in the end and you think, that's great. Is life like that? No. So when you read a story like that, you know that you are reading a fantasy book. 
When you read the Bible, one of the reasons it's rugged and rough is because it's actually dealing with life as it really is. And it's not neat, and it's not easy, and it doesn't have straight lines and simple things. And it's not a case of you become a Christian, and you struggle a bit, and then you struggle a bit less, and you, you grow in your faith, and then you're, you're really strong and settled and rooted in the Lord, and everything's great. That's not how it goes at all. Actually, and all of us who have followed God for, for any length of time can, can testify to this, that actually upsetting things that throw you and leave you wondering what God's about and not understanding what God's doing, that's actually normal. Anyone disagreeing? Anyone never have any of those things happen to them? Is there any Christian here can honestly say, I've never been at a place where I have gone, what on earth? How on earth do I keep believing this? It's not simple. So the Bible, again, addresses us in the life that we find living ourselves because it's a book that is simply true. Here it is that we're told that God tested Abraham. I want to come back to that a a little bit later, what that means, but what it tells us is that things are not straightforward. God's call sometimes messes with our heads. It doesn't just lead us into a place of peace, but it leads us into a disturbing place. And the text, the Bible's text, is aware of this. It almost rubs it in, doesn't it? It doesn't just say, take your son, and we're all going, oh, what's that like? It actually says, look, think about this. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, whom you called Isaac. It's almost as if it's really pushing us to realize just how horrible this is. And the thing is, it's even worse for Abraham because we look at this and think, well, that can't be what God wants. Because we know God doesn't do things like that. We know that God doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children. We know that God is not a monster who wants human sacrifice. But here's the thing. Abraham didn't know that. Because Abraham didn't have a Bible. Now, if you read on in the Bible a little bit more, you quickly learn that the gods of Canaan, where Abraham was were fertility gods. And there's lots of evidence to show that those fertility gods, the thinking was that they gave us lots of good things, but they were entitled to some of them back. So they gave us children so we might give them children back as we gave them crops back. And there is quite a lot of evidence that human sacrifice was practiced among pagans. In fact, when you come to the book of of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there is actually an instruction that says God hates this. Do not do this. Do not be tempted to think that when the crops are failing, you better sacrifice your children because that's what the people around you do. Be very different from them. We know that that's the case. But we need to understand that Abraham didn't know that. The reason the Bible has to later on prohibit it is because people were doing it. And Abraham... Certainly, and the the text shows this, it was breaking his heart, this command, but it wasn't that he was able to say, well, God doesn't do things like that because Deuteronomy says there is no Deuteronomy. There is no history of religion. All he can look around and say, well, other people seem to think their God's asked for this, so maybe my God does too. You know, it is one of the reasons that the Bible is 
is really important for us today because if we have a faith, it's not just a set of rules. It is a prayerful place coming to ask God what he wants of us day by day. Isn't it? That's a relationship with God. But one of the things that we struggle with is that we are human and sometimes we might hear God saying something that God isn't saying. And therefore, his word enables us to test because his word doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us a set of instructions of what God wants me to do. I didn't read the Bible and it said, oh, Alistair May shall become a minister or move to Motherwell or anything like that. But what his word tells me, and that's the blessing of having the word of God, is it tells me what God is like. It tells me what God loves and what God hates. It tells me what pleases him and what doesn't please him. So when I feel that God might be saying something to me, one of the things I can do is test it by his word. God is not going to ask me to do something which his word tells me is hateful to him. It's one of the blessings we have in having the scripture. It tells us the nature of God. But bear in mind, Abraham didn't have that, not at this point. So he had no way of knowing whether God was actually asking him for this or not. All we've got is his heart breaking. And it's worse than that, because again, this is where we need to read the, the, the story in a context. It's not just his heart is breaking like any father's heart would break at the, the sense of his son. It's much more than that. He's invested his whole life in God's promise. And what was God's promise? That he would have lots of children. What was the obstacle? He had no children. He for decades had been praying, waiting, hoping until Isaac was born. And so what Isaac represented was not just the son that he loved, but Isaac represented that God was faithful and kept his promise. Isaac represented everything that Abraham had been promised. The stars of all the children that came, the purpose of his life, the land that he would have, the blessing that God would give him and would give through him. So when he was told to go and sacrifice his son, what's going through Abraham's head is not just, I love my wee boy and I don't want anything to happen to him, which any human being would have. What is going through his head is, is everything that God promised to me now just been taken away. This is incredibly dark. And for three days, Abraham is going through the motions of taking the sacrifice up to the mountains with all the time going through his head. What on earth is God playing at? Now we're going to see some shadows in this passage, but you can see one already. Three days. The people who had lived in such hope of God's promise, of God's redemption, of God's blessing through them into all the earth, Three days by which they began to wonder that the whole thing had been a lie and was crushed. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. As those disciples who had trusted and believed and given their lives to follow the Messiah Jesus had watched him die on the cross. And for three days they sat there thinking all our hopes, all our reason to live, all our hope for the world, all our belief in the God who was finally going to sort things out crushed and taken from us. Utter confusion. And maybe, maybe as we read that story, we can find ourselves. There have been those times, those three days. Maybe it's been longer than three days. Where it's not just the pain of what's happened, but it's the crushing fear 
that God isn't even going to keep his promises. He travels. He wrestles for three days. The command of God, the promise of God, and they seem to be in conflict. The love of God, what's actually being asked by God, can't make any sense of it. A temptation, perhaps, just to grab his boy and run away. Forget the command of God. Forget the promises of God. Give up. Take the easier way to keep his family intact. That's the test, isn't it? Will you take the easy way, Abraham, or will you follow me? And that's always faith. It's wrestling, struggling. What is God doing? Can I trust him? And we can see little bits of Abraham's wrestling, can we? Even in the fifth verse here. It's, he, he said to the servants as he, as, he took, as he took his son up the hill, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And worship must mean we give our all to God and his command. And we will come back to you. Now here's the thing. We, we have no idea what Abraham meant by we will come back to you. If he's going to worship, he's going to obey God's command and he's going to sacrifice his son, but we will come back to you. It's almost a wrestling you can see within that. And the book of Hebrews goes further. It says actually this, by faith Abraham, this is Hebrews in the New Testament, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his only son. Even though God had said to him, through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now here's Hebrews trying to work out what's going through Abraham's head. Actually, Genesis doesn't tell us. But we can see the pain and the toughness in all of that. Then Abraham says simply, when Isaac next asks him, where is the lamb? Abraham might well have said, well, you are the lamb, son. What did he say? He says, my son, God will provide the lamb. In Hebrew, that term, God will provide, which comes back when he later calls the mountain the place where God provided, actually literally says, God will see to it. And it's almost as if Abraham at that point just has to say, and we can see the despondency, I, I, I don't know how this is going to work out. But God will see to the details. God will see to the details. Same thing that Paul says in Romans where he talks about all things working together for good. Doesn't mean all things are good. Some things are bad, some things are awful. Some things are indifferent, but somehow God will work through all of that. And I don't know how, and I can't explain how, and it doesn't make any sense. Somehow, God will do all of that. But it must have looked to Abraham that God at that time was being utterly unreasonable. I made a promise through my son, and now he seems to be ripping it up. 
Have you had times in your life where it seemed that God is being unreasonable? I know I have. Where I've wanted to bang the table and say, God, you can't do that. You, you, that can't be right. But here's the thing. Why should it be that an almighty God who knows all things, his plans and his purpose would seem reasonable to me? See, what we're doing at that point is we're testing God rather than him testing us. We are saying, unless what you are doing makes sense to me, unless it fits in with my ethical code, what I believe is right and wrong, I'm not having anything to do with you. You know, lots of folks say, I can't can't believe in a God who would not, or who would say this, or who would do that. And I'm left thinking, well, what are you saying? You're God, and you've got the standards, and you know what's right and wrong, and if God measures up, you'll believe in him? That's not God. That's just somebody who does what you want. But here is something different. Where Abraham is not going forward, saying everything is sorted, everything is fine, but actually everything is unsorted. You see, up to that point, God's promise has always said this to Abraham. Come, follow me, and I will give you. I will give you a blessing, a purpose, a land, a family. I will give you all these good things. Now follow me. But here's the problem with that. At what point do we have an Abraham who stops loving God and just loves the stuff that God gives him? You know what I mean? We can do that in our faith. I I love you, Lord, because my life is good and you're giving me good things. And then, but if the good things stop being there and times get tough, we start to say, I don't know if I love you. Is that because I don't actually love God, I just love the things that God gives me? I I love the presence. I love the creation. I love all these things, but I'm not sure whether I will love God if he stops giving me things. You know, I I spoke about this a few weeks ago when I I spoke about marriage, that sometimes people enter into relationships where they say, I will give you things, I will love you, I will respect you, providing you love me and respect me and and bless me and make me feel good. That's how we buy things, it's a contract. But what does it mean where I say, I love you for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health until death us do part? That means I will keep loving you and following you and trusting you even when it seems I'm getting nothing out of it. That's what that call is. And it's what the Christian call is. Is it the place that we just love God because he gives us good things? There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is a difficult book, but uh, let me summarize it in a few sentences. There's a guy called Job. He's a good guy. He lives a good life. He loves God. And he's quite well off. He has a nice family. He has a nice house. Everything's going good for Job. And in the story, and it's, it's a picture language story, the devil is sitting before God, and God says, look at Job. He loves me. And the devil says to God, no, he doesn't. 
He just loves the stuff you give him. The blessings that you give him. If you took all that away, he'd curse you. And God says, no, Job really loves me. And so the story is that actually Job loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his job. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. And he's sitting there in the dust. And his friends say to him, you've obviously done something bad. You and God are not good. And, you know, but Job just keeps believing. He struggles to do that. And that in a sense, is what faith is. It's not saying, well, I'll love God while he gives me good things. It is actually saying, I will love God because God is worth loving. There's another story in the New Testament you'll be familiar with. It's the story of the rich young ruler. You know the story? It's in Luke 18. The rich young ruler is a guy who's got everything, and he comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Lord, how do I, how do I enter into your kingdom? And Jesus says to him, well, there's a whole pile of commandments in the Bible. Love your neighbor and, and, and do good to the poor and social justice, all these things. Don't tell lies. And the rich young man says, ah, yeah, I know them. I, I, I keep them all. Well, did he? But that's another story. I keep them all. And Jesus says, only one more thing I ask of you. Take all your possessions, sell them, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich young man, we're told, loved his money so much, he said, no, I can't do that. And he wanders away. Now, what is God saying here? Or what is Jesus saying to the rich young man? Is he saying all these things, these, these, these wealth and stability and all these things are, are bad things? No. What he's saying this is you've got a problem, though. You love all this stuff more than you love me. You're holding on to all those blessings. And you think all those blessings show that I love you. Because that's where a lot of people think. If God loves me, he'll give me good things. And I've got all the good things, so God obviously loves me. I'm sorted. And Jesus says, no. What it is to enter into my kingdom, what it is to enter into my kingdom is to love me more than anything else. And know that you are loved by me, even if I don't give you riches and blessings and all the wonderful things in love. That's what it means to be a follower of mine. Now, don't read this the wrong way. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to have blessings in our life. God wanted to bless Abraham. And God did bless Abraham. And God wants to give us good things. He delights to give us good things. But more than that, he wants to have a relationship with us that is stronger than those things. And the wonderful thing about that is it's actually freeing. Because if you've got that relationship with God where you know you are completely loved and it's not dependent on stuff that God has given you, then no matter what happens, you're secure in him. You are free from worry and fear and all of those things because of God's love for you. And therefore, when God gives you things, you're grateful. They're not rights. They're not privileges. They're just God's blessing on you that you didn't deserve, but he gave you because he loved you. Now, of course, this whole passage has something else sitting behind it, doesn't it? A shadow that Abraham couldn't see, but because we have the whole of the Bible, we can see. And the story 
is of another father who went with his son up a hill with the son carrying the wood on his shoulders. His son, his only son, whom he loved. And that father who gave his son as a sacrifice for us. Where God provided the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abraham didn't know this. He couldn't see this. But for us, it is what God did. Where he did in himself. What he did not ask of Abraham that our security comes. Paul will say that the Lord who did not spare his own son will give us all things. So that no matter what happens in our life. No matter whether it's good things or bad things or dark things or joyful things. We will know that we are loved because the Lord who gave his son for us. Sacrificed on a hill. Loves us so much that he will give us nothing but good. And we can believe that even when it doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense. May you know God's love for you that knows no bounds. And may you love him for who he is. And not just for the things that he has given. Amen.